0: This might be love. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. This is Jerry, and you are listening to This Might Be Love" by Big Phoney, aka our friend Bobby Choi, an amazing musician, better friend, and even better new father at that. Encouraging you to support Asian American businesses and artists wherever you may be in the world. If you're looking for some great music, You can listen to Bobby, aka Big Phony, on Spotify, let it stream, let those pennies trickle into Bobby's pocket so he can go take care of his baby. If you want to listen to some really funny conversations by two Korean Americans who both now live in Seoul, check out Bobby and Danny Cho's podcast. It's called The Nunchi Podcast, and you can look it up on SoundCloud and on YouTube. You can listen to it after you listen to this one. Shout out to Bobby and all the other musicians out there cranking out music and cranking out creative efforts to help us get through all these crazy times. And now my conversation with Jin Yu, the Chief Growth Officer at Vest, and how he ended up starting a Facebook group to help us get through this mess from an economic perspective. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. We are continuing to share stories of Asian American heroes and badass Asian Americans who are doing whatever we can from wherever we sit to help us all get through this mess. Uh, Today's guest is an awesome human being. We're going to learn a little bit about his background and what he used to do and what he continues to do professionally and touch a little bit about uh, his motivation and his passion for sharing stories of how uh, the coronavirus is going to impact all of us economically. So I'd like to welcome Jin Yu to the conversation. Hi, Jin.
1: Hey, how's it going? Good to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for making time. So share us a little bit about your personal journey. Where did you grow up? What did you want to be when you were little? And how did you end up? I won't spoil it. I'll let you get to it. But what are you doing now? And how did you end up there?
1: Sure. Um, So I was born in Daegu, South Korea. We moved to Minnesota when I was little. And um, I grew up in Minnesota, went to the University of Minnesota, and I dropped out after my second year. I thought I was the dumbest individual in the world, because as all Asian uh, kids will tell you, there's a, enormous pressure to become doctors, uh, engineers, lawyers. Yep. I completely failed that. Depression, didn't know what I was gonna do. Just on a whim, moved to LA, no friends, no money. I got three jobs in hospitality. Um, one of them was making eight bucks an hour seating celebrities at a restaurant in Beverly Hills, making an average of seven bucks a day in tips. But yeah, that's that was my the catalyst, and I met a huge network from the restaurant industry that helped to launch my experiential event event industry for about uh, uh, ten years, and then I launched my first tech company with a client of mine from the event business that turned into Circus. Uh, Circus is now two hundred fifty million dollar uh, valuation, um, and then two years ago, uh, some of the team and I launched a new company called Vest, which is the world's first blockchain music royalty marketplace. We let fans invest in your favorite music. Um, And and that company is really exciting. It's utilizing blockchain. It's changing the world of music. And I sit on an advisory board capacity on uh, five or six other uh, companies, some tech, some non-tech related. And that's where I'm at today.
0: Let's go back to you transitioning from hospitality into the experiential event business because I would rightfully and wrongfully, and I think it's mostly wrongfully, um, a lot of us uh, from our generation were were raised to believe that there were only three career options on the menu uh, to use a restaurant reference and ordering off the menu was really not an option. Um, So how did you know that, you know, taking the experience that you had, the restaurant business is really a human business of of figuring out what people want and need and and, um, helping them with that. What was the transition point there? And, you know, how did your, I guess, Minnesota again, I guess not to jump around too much, but also is a place where there's not a ton of Korean Americans uh, as much, as many as LA or other places. Um, How did all that inform not only your decision to start an event business in LA in a very celebrity driven uh, community, Um, But what did you do differently and what were some of the cultural things that helped you uh, be super successful in that?
1: So you're right. There's not a lot of Koreans in Minnesota, but um, the way I grew up here, I think, kind of helped shape who I am and what made me successful today. Because I was an Asian-American dude and like the only minority in my school, I felt like I was fairly popular growing up in high school. But once we got to the age where we could do all age nightclubs, I think I was like 16. You know, we go to like these weird random clubs where five or six different um, schools, like kids from different schools would go there. And all of a sudden, there's all these girls that, you know, we never had any context with. So I'd go there with my buddies. They'd talk to a few girls, get shot down and end up getting drunk for the rest of the night. And me, I'm thinking, wow, there's hundreds of cute girls from all these different schools that we've never met i'm just going to talk to all of them and probably get shot down by all of them but maybe i can pull a few numbers here so instead of like talking to a few girls i would talk to literally a hundred girls like terminator and i'd get shot down by a ton of them but at the end of the day i didn't get two or three phone numbers i'd get like 20 or 30 numbers and then eventually every time kids would have like bonfires or house parties, people would be like, hey, Jin, uh, can you invite those girls from that school? That's I, I be, kind of became that go-to plug for bringing cute girls from other schools. And that wasn't what I meant to go out to do, but it's kind of like I learned how to um, become impervious to rejection. So when you put yourself out there and you just, it's, I guess it's kind of like sales, like you've got to like, you know, get rejected like every day. And if you don't, then you're not doing it right. And I guess I learned that from a young age, that it's okay to get rejected. It's like, it's nothing. Just keep going after what you want, learn, optimize, whatever. Anyway, that's the core tenet of my personality. When I got to the restaurant industry, um, I only did that out of desperation because I was broke and nearly homeless. So I needed to get anything. But I said to myself, if I'm in Beverly Hills and I'm going to choose a restaurant, I'm not going to choose Olive Garden. I'm going to shoot for the best restaurant in the city. Uh, there's probably going to be models, celebrities, uh, high net worth, billionaires, investors, all these people. Let me just try to get the best possible job, the crappiest job in the best restaurant, uh, which I did. It was a restaurant called Crustacean. It was on um, Little Santa Monica in Bedford. And at the time, it was uh, one of the hottest restaurants. I met a ton of celebrities. It was a pretty bad experience. I wasn't treated that great, but... Within a few months, they promoted me to a floor manager, a low-level floor manager. And then from there, I got some experience managing a restaurant. And when this new restaurant called Mastro's opened up Mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills, I instantly applied there. That was the talk of the town and the hospitality industry. They're spending millions of dollars. Like, that's where you wanted to go. So I got a job there, became an assistant manager at Mastro's. I learned everything I possibly could. And I'm a vegetarian and I have been for 25 years. Mm. So to this day, I don't tell too many people this. I haven't even, I've never even eaten a steak or any meat at <laughs> any of the restaurants I ran. I always just kind of like lied and told people, oh, I can't try that. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with gout. Oh, I've got health issues. Uh, so I'm on a vegetarian <laughs> now. So I kind of told people that. But anyway, at Mastro's, I rose up the ranks. I ended up running the restaurant. Taking it from zero to nearly 20 million a year, every table was a captain of industry. Every table, every night was Sumner Redstone, Rupert Murdoch, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Not to mention the celebrities: Tom Cruise, uh, Brad Pitt, like all these kind of names. And eventually, people, you know, really—I don't know—they they kind of took to me, and they would uh, take care of me, have me sit down. I got to meet their friends. I made an incredible network and when people say your network is your net worth, it's not a cliche, it's actually a thing. Like, if you've got nothing, you gotta do everything you can to build out your network as quickly, as powerful, and as impactfully as possible. And I ended up building maybe one of the best networks. Like, it's better than my network today, probably. I don't know, it was incredible that Mastro's, um, my, my, my phone directory. And then from there, I got an idea. Why don't I throw celebrity-driven experiential events? This was in 2005. So between 2005 and 2010, that's what I did. You know, we're very event-rich in L.A. There's always products, services, businesses, messages that are always being promoted. You always need celebrities. There's always brands that want to be associated with it. It's just a great place to build something. And I was able to do that and build a really great small business, making, you know, six figures and up annually until 2005. And that's when um, I had an interesting meeting with some tech people. And that's when I first got involved in technology. And that's, and that's, that path is a, is another story.
0: One, be nice to your restaurant people, especially today, because they might end up being you one day, not because of that, but it's the right human thing to do. And with particular sensitivity to all that's going on in, in today's climate. Um, if you have friends in the, in the service industry, reach out and, and say hello. I, I think that is yet another reminder. So it, it sounds like you're just born or a learned opportunist, right? Like you, you, most adolescent teenage boys, when they go into a room full of girls that they've never met, it's usually fear and uh, cold, sweaty palms. And But you just said, screw it. I'm just going to you know play the numbers game and, and see what happens. And and even your strategy and landing a job at Crustacean, then Mastro's, and how, how many thousands of you know servers and other folks who worked with you did not take advantage of the relationships and the names that were coming in, either because they thought they couldn't, um, waiting for permission, or they just didn't really see the value in it. I, I think your perspective is fascinating. Your success now, professionally, in the tech world gives you a different perspective on money and, and wealth and all that. but these stories that you're telling today with, with great clarity lets me believe that you still have that to ground you and to give you perspective of, of all that's going on. Before we get to the Facebook group and, and the project that you started a couple of weeks ago, I want to little bit learn a little bit more about you, Jin as the founder and sort of the people manager. and what do you value in the ideation stage when you look at things to invest in or the two you know companies that you started? and what kind of people do you look to help you join to run these businesses because none of us can really do this alone
1: i guess the things that i look for are the things that i don't possess i don't have a traditional educational background i'm not a scientist i'm not a data scientist i'm not a mathematician i'm not a coder a developer i'm almost unemployable <laughs> you know i kind of have i'm kind of a visionary um i think hopefully with my personality I can sell things. My skill set is building partnerships, strategic alliances, joint ventures. You know, my skill set is building rapport. And, and that's kind of valuable for some, some companies, I guess. But in terms of like scaling a business, man, I would, I, first of all, I want other people who are dreamers, people who don't take no for an answer, people that don't believe anything's impossible. You have to just, you have to go up to the plate wanting to hit a home run every time, even if you strike out all the time. Like I just, I I need to see that like unwillingness to just not settle. You know, if there's so many, there's so many easier businesses to do than tech businesses uh, you know, I don't know if you could get into like franchising, flipping houses. There's so many easier things, but with tech, there's enormous risk. There can be enormous reward, but You've got you've to be quite the visionary. You're constantly raising money. So it's very stressful. It takes a unique individual. So I want to I wanna find people who are different than me, who, who are better than me at other things. I want to be the dumbest person in the room, you know, around the people that work for me or that I'm working with. Because if I'm the smartest people in the room, then I'm in the wrong damn room.
0: Through the last 20 years of your experience from the restaurant to where you are now, what is the most important money lesson you've learned?
1: Sometimes you need to cash in your chips. Back in, in the Mastro's days, man, I had so many high net worth individuals and just influential people that I always said, hey, Jin, I feel like you're better than uh, just the restaurant industry. You know, what's your next step? What, you know, can I invest in you? Like, I feel like you'd be great, you know, at this or that. You know, I had I had an idea for, a company like Open Table that didn't exist back in 2005. Maybe it did, but we didn't even have it. We put all of our reservations on a giant sheet of paper and then we managed it manually and then called people the day of and, and confirmed reservations. I had an idea for an Open Table, and I had a, quite a few people that would ask me and that was kind of like my thought, the next evolution of restaurant reservations. But I, I never took advantage of it. Even in the 2008 stock market crash, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, just evaporated in a thin air. Trillions of dollars uh, just disappeared in our world. And when I bought a loft downtown for pennies on the dollar because the real estate crash, a huge Chinese whale of a customer he said, "Hey Jim, why don't we uh, why don't we buy every unit available in that whole building and maybe all the other buildings?" I said, "Oh my God, you know I'm not going to name his name, but that sounds insane." What? we don't even know if this is going to rebound. I'm literally buying this because I want to live here. I think I could retire in this loft. So that's why I'm buying it. I don't want to just buy it and try to flip it. Like the whole world seems to be crumbling down. And I never pulled the trigger on that. Had I I pulled the trigger on that, we would have, I mean, not now, but had we sold, let's say a year ago, there would have been generational wealth created from that, obviously.
0: That, that gives us a lot of context for, for where I want to go with this next, which is um, you created a Facebook group a week or two ago, and it is the economic impact, uh, LA COVID-19 economic impact Facebook group, where, yes, there are a lot of other discussions on the, the health concerns, the you know, activating the community, reporting racism, but you, you've chose a topic that is on everybody's mind, which is how does this affect us, and the greater community um, in, in two ways, which is, I guess, three ways. One, national economy-wise, just our local economies, and, and three, just us individually. What motivated you to start that group, and why is that topic so important to you?
1: So, not to get too political on your show, but I was a uh, Andrew Yang supporter because uh, his platform of um, the job apocalypse really resonated with me. This is something I've been talking about for a really long time, prior to even hearing about Andrew Yang, The fact that robotics, automation, AI, deep learning, machine learning, are gonna eliminate the majority of jobs that we can imagine. Prior to this quarantine, if you're in front of a computer, you will be automated by software or scripts or automation or AI. At some point, there will be, quote unquote, some kind of a job apocalypse, whether it happens because of uh, technology or because of the coronavirus. And when this pandemic first happened, I remember, I think it was um, the 13th of this month. That's when the NBA shut down. Right. Um, that's when it like occurred to me, like, wow, this, this is something, even in the worst case scenario, we may not get back to normal within a reasonable time. In the worst case scenario, it could last <clears throat> a couple months, two months, three months. Most businesses don't have the cash flow. Most human beings don't have the cash flow to last a couple days, let alone maybe a month especially if you're a gig employee or you're an out of work actor model working in a restaurant to supplement your income. The majority of people in LA in, in the creative fields don't have that kind of cushion. So my immediate concern was, wow, what are we going to do to support the local economy? Uh, What are we going to do to support some of these livelihoods? If this is ongoing, you know, what is the threshold that, you know, the world can withstand on a macroeconomic level and a microeconomic level because all of it's tied in together. You know, we saw like a you know multi-trillion-dollar economic stimulus package being talked about. We pumped it into the markets; it evaporated within moments. You're right. You know, we could give people fifteen hundred dollars as a one-time infusion, and what is that? Is that a, is that a sustainable solution? And if we give it to them every month, like Andrew Yang, is that sustainable? You know, there's a lot of questions. So the first thing we need to do is, you know, calm the panic, the hysteria, um, the concerns. All of it is valid, but we need to come together as a community. Let's talk it over. I mean, we could just, you know, run our lives based on hysteria, but it's not productive. So let's come together. Let's talk about it. And then rationally discuss solutions, ideas, concerns. You know, let's plan together. And I didn't really have a plan, but I kind of thought that this is something that could benefit um, a lot of us because this, a prolonged quarantine will impact everybody. If there's, if tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people without a job, you know, Jeff Bezos may not survive Amazon. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, 75% of Amazon's business is based based on AWS cloud server business not necessarily, you know, shilling pens and and (laughs) consumer goods, but still that business, his server business will suffer because the companies who use that may not have customers anymore. So it's a cascading effect. Tim Cook at Apple needs to be concerned. Who's going to buy a $1,000 iPhone when no one has a job anymore? So it's a a much bigger problem, uh, or it could be, than, you know, you think – it's just like my job or my ability to pay rent. So it's right. a lot bigger.
0: I think you're right. Many, many young folks who are lucky or privileged to have a, a corporate job right now who are, um, whose biggest worry might be, you know, what do I watch on Netflix? Because the checks keep coming in and you can work from home and um, you're able to, at least for now, afford all the comforts that allow you to be at home. I don't know if anybody is still worried about what you just said, which is your company might the revenue stream might stop if this thing goes a little bit longer. And obviously the world's economy is interconnected. So it's not necessarily about, you know, given the airline 60 billion, cool. But what if nobody flies that assumes that once they put the infrastructure back up, that people fill those seats and, and who are the biggest travelers, businesses, consultants. And if they don't have clients, if they're not spending any money, who cares if the airlines are operational? I would imagine you've had very many conversations with the members of that group, either on Facebook or in person and with your network um, since starting uh, this community. What, what is one thing that you've learned or you know, have relearned about the members and what they're worried about today?
1: The main concern is how are we going to get through this month, the next month? What are we going to do if this is an ongoing situation? Is this a doomsday situation? Is this cataclysmic? I don't think it is. Um, If you look at the numbers in Korea and Germany, the mortality rate is under 1%. Uh, The recovery rate keeps on growing just as the infections do. Doesn't mean don't take it seriously. We do need to. It's legitimately a pandemic. But I don't think this is an extinction event. There are going to be a lot of defaults. There's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. A lot of businesses are going to uh, go out of business. The world is not going to be the same. Um, there's a lot of people who are financially not going to be okay out of this. But we're going to have to prepare, and we're going to have to pivot, and we need to talk to one another and connect and figure out what does that pivoting look like. And let's say that the United States uses quantitative easing or whatever else economic stimulus package we have to print money out of thin air and give, you know, people two three four thousand 4,000 a month for infinity. That's not going to be sustainable either. At some point, we're going to figure out how do we replenish that money that the government is printing? What does that, you know, macroeconomic model look like? So I guess there's more questions than answers. And at the at this time, unfortunately, that's I guess the only goal for the group is to figure out what are the questions, so then we can maybe help ideate solutions.
0: It is an extremely supportive group of sharing and not hoarding information, which I think is right now um, perhaps the most important commodity. Which is, hey, the city, the county, the state, this nonprofit—you know—there are resources. I think the headlines in in mass media are the federal government is X is Y. But as we go down to the lower, more local levels of government, some of the nonprofits, you know, probably some celebrity friends of yours and some business leader friends of yours are personally, you know, creating opportunities, hiring more people, obviously supermarket business and Amazon is right now in the short term, needing more people. Um, There are, you know, funds being created to um, offset some of the losses I've heard some heartwarming stories of both commercial and residential landlords telling their tenants they were on this thing together. Don't worry, um, I'm, I'm built to you know withstand stuff like this. So, and I think if nothing else, people may feel, especially business owners, because of just the personality that it takes to start a business, they feel extremely alone and they're not used to asking for help. They are literally built to figure things out themselves, and that's why. Not why, but that's one of the big, you know, um, characteristics of being an entrepreneur is, is to figure out stuff yourself. So I, I think for you to have created a forum where it is a comfortable um, and welcoming group for people to figure things out when there's so much information out there. And mm-hmm. and even within our, you know, uh, different cultural communities, hell, language is a barrier, right? Like our parents' generation sure. um, in L.A., you know, you have to almost do things in Korean, Chinese, Spanish, Vietnamese for everybody to get on the same page. So for for us in our generations to be able to share that, even if we're not small business owners ourselves, and then to be able to share that out with the people, um, you know, I want to applaud you and thank you for creating that. Thank you. There's a lot of things that we can be sharing on Facebook, you know, a lot of negativity and, you know, applauding you for doing the, the things that I think will impact people the most and, and the impact that I think, Uh, you've done even with that Facebook group is probably going to be felt for for a long time. And and hopefully, um, things will get better. But you know, first of the month is right around the corner, um, which will be, I I think in some way, people just thought and hoped that all this would go away by first of April, or that some magical checks would appear in your bank account. Neither are going to happen, at least in LA, or at least it seems as so. Uh, We got about a week for people to figure stuff out. So um, even just knowing that they're not alone, I, I think is a big, big uh, sigh of relief for a lot of people. Uh, Jen, I, I want to thank you for your time and, and all the work that you've done and uh, invite you back so we can talk about the real fun stuff that you've been up to. Next time, I would love to get more insight on meeting Gary Vaynerchuk, who is uh, somebody that I listen to a lot and, and get a lot of inspiration from. But given all that's going on, uh, I want to end this conversation. Uh, the way that we end most of our conversations, which is going back to the name of the show, which is Dear Asian Americans. The inspiration point was to start conversing with each other, from each other, uh, to write each other love letters and inspirational letters so that we can all get through not just this, but life in general together. Um, so uh, I will start the letter. And if you could help us finish out the show by finishing the letter Dear Asian Americans.
1: So, Dear Asian Americans. I know that we're in a time of great uncertainty, fear, and we don't know what the future holds. Uh, those are legitimate concerns, but please don't um, drown in the panic uh, or the hysteria that's going around. Try to stay off the phones. Um, try to get off social media. If you can, try to be productive, uh, connect with your family, your friends, um, just like we're, you and I are doing right now on Zoom. Zoom is an amazing product host your own Zoom happy hours, learn from each other, barter skills, um, try to come out of this stronger and uh, and better than ever before. I think this is a great opportunity. We're kind of learning what is most important right now. Uh, There's a lot of time to reflect and we're understanding our priorities. There's not a lot of shopping going on. We're, you know, (laughs) there's not a lot of frivolous things. We're kind of getting back to the basics. We're connecting with the people that we love and we're connecting with information that inspires us and that moves us. And you can do the same. Everyone is a beacon of light and an inspiration to someone else. So try to try to pass that along if you can. I'm not trying to be totally altruistic, but these are the ways that give me pleasure when I can help teach, share, inspire uh, with others. And I'm hoping, I hope other people that can do that for me. So, especially within the Asian community, as you mentioned earlier, um, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of us in media, in music, in film, in television. There's not a lot of us to look up to. So, we've got to do it for each other. Um, I don't see the Asian community do that as much as the African American community, the Jewish community. There's a lot of communities where they're just like if you know anything I can do any information I can share any resources it's yours brother like that's that is the evolutionary shift that Asians should take and adopt after this um just be completely foolishly generous with your information resources and knowledge if you can I I would love to see that
0: thank you and and you're doing that now um you're running a number of uh, these conversations where you're in the host chair and you're interviewing other people in a series that you're calling Coffee and Quarantine. We'll link Jen's Instagram and, and Facebook pages and where you can find those below. It's awesome, I think, when, you, when, when we meet somebody like you who we look at you in a current snapshot of he's the founder of this cool company and he's grown it. And as with all of our guests, then we look back and go, how the hell did you move here? And what were your first years like? And everything starts to make sense because there's context, and part of the reason I wanted to start these conversations on my podcast is to go back to the earlier years, right? Like you said, we need to share knowledge and information, and we have a unique history in America that not a lot of even other immigrant immigrant groups can say that they understand, yeah, because of how we moved here. You know, most Koreans moved here in our free will. Some other you know folks from different countries did not, um, particularly in Minnesota, right? So. Mm-hmm. How does that impact your attitude towards your identity of your home country plus America? Um, A lot of different complexities. I am equally hopeful, Jen, as you said, we want to get to a point like other communities where it's share, 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 and, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Challenging, obviously, because of language, culture, and different things, um, inter-Asian politics and histories. But out of this, after everything subsides, because in the face of racism and xenophobia, we have to stick together. I hundred percent agree with you. We have to come out of this stronger. We have to come out of this louder. I did not intend to start an Asian American podcast two weeks before all this crap happened, but I'm glad I did uh, because I've gotten to meet people like you and share your story. Because like you're right, this is a time where we need to be sharing positivity and hope and and resources. And so, um, thank you so much for making the time. You know, in addition to running your companies, um, um, thank you for making time for what is important and reminding us some of the things that we need to be focusing on, which basic human to human needs and connection. So Jen, thank you so much. And uh, please come back when times are better. As, as much as I love Zoom, I uh, would love to have the next
1: conversation in person, man. Yeah, the feelings mutual. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on your podcast.
0: Thank you, Jed. Be safe and I'll see you
1: next time. You bet.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jen. So cool. Uh, What an amazing story from Minnesota, the high school dances, getting that crappiest job at the best restaurants, his need to be the dumbest person in the smartest room. I think there are so many lessons that you can learn from Jen. I'm so glad I got to meet him. He's got a really great and supportive Facebook group. I invite you to join. It's going to take every one of us to pitch in and to contribute so that we can all get through these challenging times together. I want to thank Jen again for joining us on the show. If you found this show enlightening or educational or even entertaining, I invite you to please share this show with a couple friends, tag them in the comments below, uh, forward them the podcast link, or just come them to look up the Asian Americans. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time here on the show. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.